This is the One Accord Podcast, and today we're talking about the Bible. In particular, we're talking about the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy. What does it mean when we say that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God? Can we trust it? Should we believe it? How does it contrast itself with other books that claim the same? We've got the team with us as always, so let's go ahead and bring in uh, Brother Greg Churchley. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good morning. It's nice to see you. I have uh, an well. important... I have thank you, thank you. I have a, an important question to ask you. Oh, did no. you get your air horn? I did not. No, air, you know, I've decided that out of humility, I'm just going to submit to whatever you throw my way, Joe, without the air horn. Well, so. that's not really the spirit of the show. So maybe I'll have to buy one and send one your way. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe you should. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, again, a little bit of uh, humility goes both ways. I'll try and uh, humble myself and listen to you. I've even got my humble yourself shirt on. So, oh, look at that! In any event, uh, it's good to see you today, and you I look forward to talking about this with you. And uh, let's bring in uh, the last member of our team. Last but not least, uh, Pastor Eric. Pastor Eric, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm here with you guys, about ready to talk about. Uh, the things of God. So I, I couldn't be any better. Let's get right into it. No reason to delay. All of us are Christians, uh, although we have uh, talked about some, you know, various differences that we have on certain views, uh, particularly like eschatology and things like that. One thing that we at least agree on on the surface is that the Bible is the Word of God. And uh, yet I know that certainly not everybody believes that. So what does it even mean to believe that God uh, God's word is the Bible. What does that mean? Or when you say that, what do you mean by that? You're asking me, Joe. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Eric, I'd like to hear. Yeah. Let me, I'll start. Um, yeah. When I say, when I say that the, the Bible is the word of God, I'm making, I'm making the claim that God has, has not only created a message, he's handed down a message and he's protected a message throughout the ages but in which he has revealed himself to us. He's, he's revealed historical facts, but, but above and beyond that, he's, he's revealed something of himself that, that is true and it's profound and it's, and it's necessary. We, we need to hear what it is God has, has given us to understand. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's a good uh, description. And I, I would agree with that. Uh, Paul, said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is inspired by God. And I think that literally means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So Paul said that all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. It, it came from God. And um, if that's true, then scripture reveals the mind and heart of God. It, it's, it's God communicating to us. And if, if God is communicating to us through the word, then the word is the most important book in the history of humanity. And uh, man should take its teachings very, very seriously. So I, I think that's that's the abbreviated version. I'm in full agreement with what you guys said, and that I think leads to a very natural follow-up question. Why then believe the Bible? Because there are other books that claim to do this exact same thing. And so while I agree with you guys as a Christian that the Bible is God's self-revelation, that it is actually uh, breathed out by him in some sense, and we'll get into more of what that means uh, in just a, a little bit uh, in this episode. But before we even define what those things mean, 
Other books claim the same thing, and other prophets claim the same thing. So why believe the Bible, especially if it disagrees with others who claim to also speak for God, to also reveal God, to also tell us these important things about uh, our Creator and what He wants from us and what we ought to do and how we ought to live and everything else that comes along with that? Yeah, what you're asking about, Joe, um, and I'll use the big you know five dollar theological word. You're talking about epistemology. You know, how do we know? what we know, where, where does our knowledge come from? And so at a very practical level, um, we all have to decide um, where our epistemological authority comes from. We have to make a choice that says, I'm going to accept this as a source of truth and then operate based upon that. Now, some, some sources of truth are very self-evident. Um, I believe and I accept gravity because, well, I don't have much of a choice. It's very self-evident. But there are other things that um, that aren't aren't nearly as uh, profound physical realities uh, that we have to accept um, sources of truth on. And so, when it comes to the epistemological authority of why I accept the Bible as the truth rather than the Quran or um, any of the other holy writings, I have a quote here that that I've that I've really enjoyed. This is definitely isn't for me. It's from a uh, pastor, author, Vody Bauckham. He addresses this and he, he addresses it in a couple of great videos as well. He says this, I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. End quote. Now, each and every aspect of that is is an important statement, and maybe we could talk about some of it. We sh- I don't want to rehash uh, Dr. Bauckham's whole speech here, um, but each one of those aspects that he's laid out is very important. So, at at a very at a very practical level, um, I have to, you have to, every one of us has to choose. Um, our epistemological authority, where are we going to say we accept truth from? And now what he's done here is laid out a couple of reasons, a couple of very good reasons why that ought to be the Bible. Um, and, but I, I want to make sure I point out that everybody has to choose something. Are you choosing it for good and sound reasons? Are you choosing it for um, very pragmatic reasons or emotionally significant reasons or, or you know, what are you basing your epistemological choice on? And so, uh, yeah, that quote from Bauckham sums it up quite well for me, I think. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating that the top three religions in the world, um, or the, the top three, at least the, the monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all agree that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, there are some differences. Uh, for example, of course, um, those who practice Judaism don't believe the New Testament is the Word of God, but they believe the Old Testament is. Uh, Muslims believe that uh, certain parts of the Bible are inspired by God. The Psalms, for example, they believe is the Gospels. Um, so it's interesting that uh, that the, the the top three monotheistic religions all agree that at least um, some portions of the Bible are the Word of God. And of course, Christians believe that all of it, that both the Old and New Testament, uh, is is the Word of God. 
So I think that's really interesting that there's there's that much agreement even among these different uh, religious groups. Now, if we, if we did not have the New Testament, let's just say hypothetically we didn't have the New Testament, uh, there people would still um, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People would actually people did believe many people, thousands of people, um, millions of people believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ prior to the New Testament. Why is that? Because belief in the resurrection of Christ is not dependent on the written New Testament. It's dependent on, as Greg pointed out, eyewitness testimony. The apostles went around telling people that they saw Jesus die and they saw him uh, risen from the dead. They spoke with him, ate with him, uh, touched him. They, they were witnesses of this. And um, their, their testimony is supported, of course, by the Old Testament uh, because Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Um, but people could believe in the resurrection without the New Testament. Now, if Jesus really did rise from the dead and, and he was raised in a unique way because he was raised to immortality and no man raised Jesus from the dead, uh, God the Father did. And if Jesus was raised, that means that he is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Now, that's important because Jesus himself claimed that the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that there was at that time in Jesus' life, Jesus claimed that that was the Word of God. He called the, uh, the Bible the Word of God. And... Um, so that's that's significant because if he if Jesus really is the Son of God, then he wouldn't have been wrong about that. So he claimed that the Bible is the Word of God. Also, that would mean that his teachings were authoritative, uh, you know, Scripture. So the New Testament includes his teachings, and Jesus appointed apostles to uh, teach the church, and the and the apostles were inspired by God. There are many different reasons why I believe the apostles were inspired. Um, but they wrote the uh, the New Testament. And so if you take all these things into consideration, if you put all these things together, uh, it makes, a, I think, a, a, a sufficient case that the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are inspired by God. There's many, many other reasons, um, like archaeological evidence that confirms historical events in the Bible and um, so many other things. But I, I believe that a, a really a good, sufficient case can be made that the entire Bible is inspired by God. So as I'm listening to you guys talk, and, and I think, um, you know, anybody who's watching this, there, there are maybe two avenues that you could pursue. It sounds like the, and that was an interesting quote from uh, Bodhi Bakum. I, I don't know that I've ever heard that one before, but I think he started it, um, and I don't want to misquote it, so you correct me if I, if I sure. heard wrong. Yeah. Um, but that he said he chooses to believe this, and then yeah. he gave reasons why. Yeah. And Eric, likewise, you're talking about, um, you know, if we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, then the things that he says about the word of God should matter to us. Um, is this, uh, as a doctrine, do you guys view this as a, as a doctrine of faith? Like we have to believe first um, and then we trust the source? Or, um, you know, others, they will take a much more academic approach. And we could talk about fulfilled prophecies. And we talk about, because Vodi Bakum also said, about historical documents and there's there's historical things we can go outside of the new testament we can make a really historical case um, and a more ac academic case um 
do you guys kind of blend both the, the faith aspect and the academic aspect together? Does the academic stuff increase your faith or did it start with faith for you? And then that kind of led to your academic study. I mean, how was that uh, for you? Cause we could, we could sit here and we can make a purely academic case, try and convince anybody, even if you don't believe you ought to, because this is, you know, all these historical facts, or it could just be simply a matter of faith. And there's probably some watching this go, I just believe the Bible because I believe in Jesus and Jesus, you know, he talks about the scriptures and that's actually really where I came from. You know, I, I mean, sometimes um, people accuse me of being academic. I'm not all that academic really. Um, but I, I didn't believe. And then I believed in Jesus. And because I believed in Jesus, I then sought out the new Testament. I sought out the old Testament because Jesus seemed to talk a lot about the old Testament. And then, um, you know, I, I give them the benefit of the doubt, these documents, because I believe in Jesus. And I realize every, you know, the, the historical stuff really backs it up. I got an awful lot of quote unquote apologetic ammunition if I want it. But ultimately, if I'm being truthful about why I believe, it's because I believe in Jesus. I believed in Jesus first. The Bible didn't make me believe in Jesus. Actually, believing in Jesus made me believe in the Bible, if that makes any sense. So I, I'm kind of curious where you guys are at. I think the answer, well, for me, I, you know, I have my answer, but I think the answer can depend upon the individual. I, I don't, I don't think you necessarily, well, I want to leave the door open that God could work by bringing someone to faith through an apologetic argument. Or he could work by giving that faith, and then the apologetic argument only adds ammunition too. I think if we if we say it has to be one way or the other, I, I don't think we have the right or the authority to do that. So for me, sure, I wasn't trying to make a case that they I, they should be mutually exclusive. I, I agree with you. I, I, I was just yeah. curious which avenue maybe was more persuasive to you, or which one you're you're more um, persuaded by, or if you're if a blend of the two. Because again, yeah. both are both can be appropriate in their in their place for sure. Yeah, for for me, um, the I came to faith. And then my faith was shored up by these apologetic arguments. Um, but I, I want to definitely leave room open for somebody who would hear the gospel and go, okay, yeah, but, and then hear all these apologetic arguments and go, you know what? That's a sound argument. Here's something I'm going to place my, my faith there. So for me personally, the faith came first, the apologetic arguments shored all that up and, yeah. and made it rock solid. I think there's room for the other way around. My experience was similar. Um, the, the the faith came first, and I would describe it like this: when I when I would hear about Jesus, um, you know, some people have said things like, "Well, um, so if you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it it probably you know it's probably false, right?" Um, but when I whenever I would hear about Jesus, it it was like the opposite for me. This is this is too good to be false. Jesus just seemed too good to be simply a you know a fictional person and or or, or a false teacher or something like that. I just because of the person of Jesus, because um, his his teachings were just so I don't know, in my mind just so pure and good and right that I just thought this this has to be. This, there has to be something uh, beyond just you know Jesus being human. I mean, I, I, I so I believed I think for that reason that that Jesus was um, you know really the Messiah. Uh, now some might say, you know, well you're just you're kind of just going by your feelings, and uh, I would say Which is well, where the apologetic argument comes in, right? Where sure, um, but you know, but I would say this: uh, 
True. I, I, I was kind of led by my feelings, but that still doesn't make me wrong. <laughs> um, you know, feeling, feelings are not the authority, but feelings are not necessarily wrong either. Um, and some people say, well, you, you believe that because you heard it from your parents and therefore your beliefs aren't valid. That's called the evolutionary fallacy. And it's the idea that a, a, a belief is wrong because of where it came from. And actually, that is, that's logically uh, absurd because just because you heard it from your parents doesn't make it untrue. Your parents, they probably talk well two plus two totally is four correct. too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a weak argument, right? Like, um, and again, I would definitely commend anybody to watch. There's a few versions of Vody Bakum, YouTube, why I choose to believe the Bible. Um, it is a very weak argument to say, you know, why do you believe in God? Why do you put your faith, hope and trust in Christ? Oh, because my parents told me now again, to your point, Sure, that's that's not a it's not a false um, argument. It's just a very weak argument when it comes to why should I then you know hey if my my parents didn't so therefore I shouldn't believe. Um, so again, true. Not, it, I, I don't believe what my parents taught me. So uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah. The, about well, Jesus. There you go. Yeah, not about yeah. Jesus. Let me say this too about faith. Um, now, like I said, my my faith began the way that I just just described, um, but. Biblical faith has often been um, described by, usually it's by like skeptics or atheists, as believing in something that has no evidence. And that is actually not how the Bible defines faith at all. There's uh, so many examples in Scripture that completely contradict that idea. One example out of many is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense or an apologetic to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice the implication. It's when someone asks you why you believe, you're not to say, well, because I just believe, because I just live by faith. No, that's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to give them uh, a defense, a defense, the Greek word means a well-reasoned argument for why you believe what you believe. Uh, and in, in, the, in the case of the first century church, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The apostles witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They, um, they saw this with their own eyes. This was not a belief. They weren't living by faith. They were living by sight. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. And they were going around telling people this, and they were willing to die rather than deny their testimony. And if they were lying, there's no reason why they should have been willing to die rather than recant. So I, I think that um, anyone who's listening to this, if, if you've ever heard anyone say that, that Christian faith means you believe without evidence, the Bible nowhere supports that idea and everywhere contradicts it. I think that that's a really important fact. Uh, and I, I just want to add on some additional information because I've, I've heard people that have um, objected to that and said, you know, there's, there's cults that are willing to, to die for their faith or their, you know, suicide bombers are willing to die for their faith and stuff like that. Um, but there is a difference between believing what somebody else tells you and then being willing to die for what you say you saw with your own eyes. And the, the origin of Christianity, um, they could have very easily improved their life and stopped the persecution and stopped their suffering 
if they just would have stopped saying that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, um, that they saw it, that, that hundreds of people saw Christ alive, that they, they spent time with him after uh, he was crucified. And, and that's so, just one. Uh, that's just one aspect of the sure. argument, right? Like, right. So don't don't hear us say if you're listening that oh, the the reason you should right. believe what's written in the Bible is because these people were willing to die when they could have made their lives easier. I just that do think that that is a, uh, and I, I think that's a great clarification because yeah, I'm not I'm not intending this to be the only reason. I just for anybody who's listening, go well. Other people die for what they believe too. Um, not in the same way. There was a, a different type of character at the origin of this faith movement, which again, is part of that apologetic. I didn't know all that stuff when I believed. I, I learned that later, but I, I go, wow, this is actually different. This isn't just me being willing to die for what I believe. Um, this is them being willing to die for what they say they saw under pain of torture. People you know, trying to tell them recant. And they said, we can't tell you anything other than what we've actually seen with our own eyes. Um, and so, yeah, there is, Faith is an interesting thing, and, and Eric, your definition is good, and I, I appreciate it because people do. You know, they think that all Christians are maybe soft in the head, and they just believe whatever they want to believe, and and that would be true of any book, right? If you believe, or any any guru, or anybody that we would put ourselves under their authority, we just go, oh, I just I believe this; it makes me feel good. But Christianity does, at least, if we'll read the document, th there is a, a level of um, scrutiny that is encouraged that we should look to. Um, everything that claims to have authority for anybody who claims to speak for God, anybody who claims thus saith the Lord, put their claims to the test. God's word says this. And so there is a level of not just saying, well, they said prophecies, but they didn't come true, but we still just choose to believe it. No, no, no. We're supposed to put it to the test. And if it comes true, it's from the Lord. If it doesn't, it wasn't from him. And so, you know, I know that a lot of people, they look at um, the Bible and they say it's filled with contradictions. Um, of course, I disagree. I don't think that there are any contradictions. And that really gets us into to where the meat of our conversation. When we say that the Bible is God's word, that it's inspired, that it's inerrant, if God is making a bunch of errors, if God's word is filled with a bunch of mistakes, um, this probably isn't a God worth believing in. And I don't know that I, I want to put my faith in someone who gets a bunch of stuff wrong. You know, I don't want to put my trust, especially for my eternal salvation, in somebody who gets a bunch of stuff wrong. And so, um, as a Christian, I'm going to encourage Christians to do the same thing I would encourage a, a Muslim or, uh, you know, someone who believes in something else. If, you, if you're a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, to, to have the same level of scrutiny for your so-called prophets, to look to what they've actually claimed and said, um, because I think that that mattered. And when I first came to faith in Christ, I did go to my investigation um, not just to, to get ammunition, ammunition for others, but because I wanted to know, is this actually true? Now, it, there was a, a, an, uh, an emotional and feelings-based aspect to it. It wasn't all rational. I, didn't come, I wasn't just sitting in a, in a study after making hours and hours of you know, logical deductions and go, ah, Jesus is the Christ. That's not how it happened for me. Um, but I also, you know, I don't want to believe something that is false. Um, I want to believe what is true. And so... Um, when we talk about God's word as a firm foundation, something that is trustworthy, that's where we get to these doctrines of inspiration, of inerrancy. And so what, what do these terms, what do these mean? Well, I can give you the definition that I've used in the past. Um, so if I've stolen this from somebody, it happened so long ago that I don't remember. I, I, um, a couple definitions that I've used over time. Again, I don't remember their source if I didn't come up with them as a compilation of reading. 
Uh, for inspiration, I, I say this, the inspiration of scripture means that it's not primarily the product of a man or men uh, or women. <laughs> While God chose to use men, the prophets and apostles, to communicate his message to the rest of humanity, God himself is the originator and protector of that message. That, that as, as, um, as Eric has pointed out, it's God breathed. And again, using the Bible at, to, to source to, um, to, as proof text, I'd point you at second Peter one and second Timothy three as, as again, as Eric has said. And then when it comes to inerrancy, can we, before you move on, can we oh, read yeah, second sure. Peter? We already read first Timothy, but can you, uh, second yeah. Peter one, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy spirit spoke from God. So uh, for an inerrancy, I've, I've used this as my working definition. The whole scripture is completely true and without error at any point. God's words are the very standard for truth because they are his words and he is the standard for all truth. God cannot lie, so therefore every word he speaks is completely reliable. We recognize the Bible's use of literary devices such as hyperbole, simile, metaphor, um, personifications. These devices do not compromise inerrancy when understood as God intended. Um, and now, to flesh out those two, I want to give a couple of things. Um, I'm pulling this from Wayne Grudem, uh, the theologian. It says, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. The Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. The Bible can be inerrant and have unusual or uncommon grammatical uh, constructions. Um, yeah, thought, thoughts on that before I keep bouncing on. I don't want to. Yeah. Wanna um, I, if you said it, I missed it. Um, and it, uh, you, the internet connection was uh, going in and out, so it's possible oh, I just didn't hear it. But um, I know when I have heard definitions of inerrancy before, um, they're always careful to talk about in the original manuscripts, the original autographs. Was that part of your definition? Sure. I, I didn't, I didn't build that in, but yeah, I would definitely say as the original authors originally wrote it, um, there is the, we, we do need to recognize that over time as, as documents have been copied and transcribed. Um, sure enough, um, we, we would, uh, we would recognize that errors in copying have, have happened. Uh, we would counter that and say that we have such an abundance of manuscripts from different um, different copyists, uh, families, different lines, and we can compare those, and and we can be we can be very sure of what the originals did say. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, the 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 science of textual criticism that studies the types of copyist errors that are made, whether you're inscribing these things yourself in a dark cave somewhere by hand, or you're uh, doing it as somebody else is dictating it. So you're hearing what they're saying and you're writing it down. The same types of errors are made in lots of different places. And um, conversely to those who are, I guess, not uh, up on all of their textual criticism science, um, actually the existence of those errors does not decrease our confidence in the original content. It actually increases it. Um, because like you said, there's such an abundance of manuscripts from so many different places that by knowing the types of errors that are made, um, when something is there, it actually helps us to to have great confidence in what the originals was in most places. Now, there are some difficulties that are are hard to resolve. 
Um, but, um, uh, yeah, that, that in the originals, I think is an important thing for people to realize because others who say, well, I mean, there's so many different translations of the Bible and they all say different things. I mean, they have slightly different English translations in English or in other languages, maybe, um, they are speaking to the same content. But when we talk about inspiration, when we talk about inerrancy, we are talking about the original authors being inspired by God and those original products. And so the copying over time um, possibly has introduced um, some, you know, copyist errors here and there, which again, I think is, it's, it's good to at least acknowledge those things. So, um, uh, but those are my thoughts. Eric, did you have anything else to add? That was I just, I'll, I'll just add something real quick and then turn it back over to Eric. Um, one thing to note is that, you know, any, any reliable, good version of the Bible that you have today is going to have notes in your Bible telling you or many of those things, um, many of the, the common disagreements are. So yeah. it, it's not like we're trying to, you know, no one's trying to hide it behind, behind the curtain. Um, right. Very upfront. If you're, it's if an you're open the text. secret, open it's secret. Open, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a secret at all. Cause it, like I said, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't decrease my confidence. It actually increases my confidence personally. When you, when you know about it, it's one of those things that atheist train use. Oh, you don't know that they, they made all these, you know, these different copies and some pseudo scholars write books about these things saying, Oh, there's this one document. That's clearly an error, but they're like, that's what the real one was. You know, it's all the other 4,099 copies that got it wrong. This is the right one. You're like, <laughs> it's obvious that that's the error um, for so many reasons, but that doesn't fill out the seminars and, and get as many uh, uh, clicks on the internet. So um, people make their entire, I'll call it pseudo scientific reputation or pseudo academic reputation on that and sell an awful lot of books from that um, nonsense. And it convinces a lot of people, but it's, uh, it's uh, hogwash. You guys in the market for some hogwash? I want to wash your hogs. Love a glass hey, of hogwash. Eric, Eric, what were you going to say? Um, I remember. I think it was. It was very early on in my Christian life. I, I may have been a Christian for I don't know, a couple of years, and I remember coming across a, a, a video where this guy said, "No one should believe the Bible because it's filled with contradictions." Filled. And he, filled with contradictions. Um, <laughs> it's full of them. Sorry. Oh, just. That's all there is is contradictions. And he listed a hundred alleged contradictions yeah. um, from the Bible. And I went through every one of them. And what I found was that 80 to 90% of them were nothing more than copyist errors. Uh, for example, one verse says Solomon had 300 stalls of horses. Uh, another verse says Solomon had 3,000 stalls of horses. And you, could, you can easily see that the, the scribe probably added an extra zero or something when he was copying the text, something like that. But, um, but it's interesting because here this poor guy had zero understanding of uh, how the Bible came to be. And he had no idea even what a copyist error was. All he knew was, well, this verse says this, and this other verse says something else. Therefore, it's a, it's a contradiction. But we have to make a distinction between a copyist error and a contradiction because those are not the same thing. Um, it was at that time, of course, and you guys already touched on this, but the original manuscripts were inspired and inerrant, as we would say. Um, but the scribes that copied those texts were not uh, inspired or inerrant. So they did make some mistakes along the way. Um, and that, that accounts for, I would say, when people say there's contradictions in the Bible, those kinds of things account for probably 98, 99% of what they're talking about. There are some other things that, you know, uh, that need explanation too, but 
would say copyist errors are, are the vast majority of what people call contradictions, which are no hilarious, contradictions at all. The hilarious thing is, you know, anybody out there listening to this that goes, well, you know, but, but there it's, there's contradictions. I tell you this, you go ahead and read for just one time, read the Bible cover to cover. And if, and if you come to the conclusion that the, oh, that 300 versus 3000, that that is a reason not to be convicted, that you are a sinner in need of, in need of grace and salvation. Um, due to your sins uh, and that Christ is offering you that salvation. Um, if you can, if, if those arguments are enough to, to convince you um, I've got no better argument for you, but yeah. it is the truth. Yeah, no, certainly I think that that is a good admonition and I'll, I'll second that anybody who's watching, take the time to actually read every word for yourself and uh, make your own list. Don't just go and to these websites and take a bunch of stuff out of context or listen to what other people have said. Um, cause my experience is similar to yours, Eric. I, I, as a new believer, um, like I mentioned, I believed in Jesus. I didn't really grow up believing the truth about Jesus. So now I'm, I'm believing in him and I spent uh, more time than I'd like to even admit on a lot of, uh, skeptical websites, trying to look at all the reasons not to believe and everything to, to kind of disprove and discredit Christianity and, and, and scriptures and the Bible and Jesus and all this stuff. Man, I, I realized that, um, it is a huge percentage, 95% of all these supposed contradictions that exist on these atheist websites or, or other things um, are either a simple uh, copyist error like you're describing, or um, in most cases, it's just them just ripping stuff out of context. And we've, we've talked about this on, on some of our earlier videos because um, Christians do it too, right? The, um, you know, he is uh, uh, faithful uh, if we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Like that sounds like it means one thing, unless you read it with the verse immediately before it, then it sounds like it means the exact opposite thing because context matters. And so when we rip, you know, sentences out of the scripture and put them together as if they are, um, without any context around them and we go, ah, look, they disagree with each other. James and Paul disagree with each other. They contradict each other. Well, no, they don't. If you just read them in their context, they're talking about um, you know, a contradiction means it has to be this and not this at the same time and in the same sense. But if it's not talking about them in the same sense, then it's not a real contradiction. And They're so, talking about compliments. The, right. The, and so these things complement each other. You're talking about yeah. one side of the coin and now you're talking about the other side of the coin and, and they come together to give you a more fully fledged truth that isn't in any way contradictory. In fact, they are in full agreement with each other if you understand the sense. And so there are though, a few issues, and the, it's funny that you bring up the Solomon's uh, stalls for his, his horses, because in my opinion, that is on the short list of most difficult issues in the Bible. Like it is, it is one of those that I, you know, even with all the science of text criticism and everything else, I don't know what the original is. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's 300 or 3000. And I remember as an earlier Christian, younger Christian going, well, if it was 300, what would that change? If it's 3,000, what would that change? It's, it's exactly what you said, Greg. Like, I'm still a sinner. I still need a savior. Jesus is still risen from the dead. Like, none of this stuff matters. And so there was an original. And somewhere along the line, the thing that I can't know for sure is one of the most inconsequential details. As opposed, it's, it's never, of all the people say, like, all these, all these, it's filled with contradictions. It's never on anything of real substance. And imagine suppose, the grace... Imagine the grace and mercy and absolute kindness of God that that's what, what yes. we don't know. 
Like, yeah. I suppose all the exactly. things that we do know, that's what we don't know. Praise After thousands God. of years, the information that years. was lost is I yeah. don't know whether Solomon had 300 or 3,000. I know he and, had at least 300. I do yeah. know that. <laughs> right, at least, at least 300. 300. Yeah. Now, there's something, there's, it's important too, because some people might think, well, if they listen to skeptics, skeptics um, exaggerate this problem. Like Bart Ehrman is a perfect example. Bart Ehrman yeah. is one of the greatest exaggerators um, probably in the history of in modern history. Um, when he talks about the, the you know, tra uh, transmission of the text and things like that and copying the text. And he talks about how, oh, there's all these mistakes that were made. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of mistakes. And, and what you find, if you actually study the subject and you, you hear, you know, other scholars that know how this stuff works. And Bart Ehrman has even admitted this himself. 99% of these errors or these, these copying errors are totally trivial. They, have, they don't change anything in the text. The meaning is, is exactly the same. No doctrines are affected by them. Christianity is not threatened in any way by these. And not only that, but Joe, as you said earlier, because we have thousands of copies, when you compare all the copies, scholars are certain that uh, what we have right now, our Bible right now, is 98 to 99% true to the original text, which means we're uncertain. There's, there's 1% to 2% uh, uncertainty. But there's 98 to 99% certainty. I mean, that's... And the things that we're uncertain about are the 300 or the 3,000 stalls. Exactly. I mean, trivial, completely trivial things, things like that don't that. matter at all. If you adopted the opposite view, it would literally change nothing about your, exactly. your faith exactly. or your doctrinal statements or anything like so, that. So these skeptics talk this up Unless, like, oh my goodness, Christianity, you really got to watch out for this. Really? Because if you really know the facts, you realize that the Bible you have is definitely reliable and definitely uh, very accurate to the to the originals. So with all this being said, um, you know, I, I don't want to give the idea that there isn't anything difficult in Scripture. Of course there is, and I know that you guys would acknowledge that. And so there are, um, if we wade through some of the, um, some of the more difficult issues, um, even there might be some Christians who primarily are our target audience, right? We're not trying to convince unbelievers, not really. Of course, unbelievers are welcome to watch this show. Um, but uh, our, our intended purpose, or at least our focus core audience is to talk to Christians. And so there might be Christians who are watching this, who wrestle with this document, doctrine of the inspiration of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. What does it mean that God has told us these things? Um, even when we read through the Gospels, for example, there might be some seemingly discrepancies in the way that things are recorded, and it's not always immediately apparent how it is that these things can be reconciled. And so maybe we can talk about some specific issues or some specific questions that Christians might raise that would talk about this doctrine and how it practically works out. And, um, you know, Eric, I know that you're, uh, you, you're in ministry and, and you talk to Christians and, and have that pastoral heart. Are there things that you as a pastor have heard or, or, or um, you know, thought about and uh, questions that maybe are important for us to talk about uh, on this, uh, this episode while we talk about inspiration and inerrancy of God's word? Definitely. And I think you're, uh, you're right when you said we're talking about the reliability of Scripture. We're not saying that, that 
there's nothing difficult in Scripture to to reconcile. Um, it, there definitely is. There are ways of reconciling these things. There are ways of making sense of it. Um, and just there's one question that is, I think, a, a commonly asked question among uh, Christians, and that is, if all Scripture is inspired by God, which Paul said in Second Timothy three sixteen, um, and Paul Paul's own writings were considered scripture, and they were, um, because uh, Peter, for example, in uh, I think it's it's uh, is it Second Peter three uh, verses fifteen and sixteen, where um, Peter says he's referring to Paul Paul's writings, and he says that Paul's writings are scripture. Um, so Paul uh, Paul was a writer of scripture and wrote most of the New Testament. Um, so Paul believed that Scripture is inspired by God. Paul even said himself that his writings were inspired by God. But yet, he, Paul also said that some of the things he said were his opinion. For example, he said that in 1 Corinthians 7.25 and later on in 7.40. So um, this has been a challenging, uh, a, a challenging issue because if all of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of Scripture includes Paul's writings, which I believe it does, then how do we reconcile the idea that all Scripture is God-breathed, and yet Paul um, included his opinions in in some places? What do you guys think about so, that? So I have a question first. As you deal with this or have dealt with this in ministry, is that a question of inspiration or a question of inerrancy? Which, which one are we— in, in, uh, it, it would not necessarily affect inerrancy, um, because okay. an opinion can still be true. Um, there's there's okay. no reason at all why why it would have to be false. I mean, so there's a know, struggle to dis, to understand why God would inspire Paul to give an opinion where there is not clear, strong biblical God command. Is that is that the root of the question? Yeah, I think the question is if if Paul if everything Paul wrote was inspired by God. Then why would he say that some of the things that he wrote were his opinions? If how can an opinion be inspired by God? Because if it's inspired by God, why would it be an opinion? What do you guys think about that? I have a, I have a thought on it, so I'll, I'll see if my thought aligns with uh, with your thoughts. I was just waiting for Greg. Greg asked oh, a clarifying sure. question. I thought he was going to. Uh... Yeah, sure. No, I, I guess I, perhaps my my response to that came in the question I asked. Um, Specifically looking at, uh, you, you brought up 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, where Paul writes, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as to one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Um, man, that, that almost answers itself. Paul had not received any clear command from God, and so, as one trustworthy of God, here he's giving his opinion. Um, I, I think this is reinforcing exactly the doctrine itself. Um, yeah, he's being moved by the Holy Spirit as one trustworthy in the Lord, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who's been given authority to provide his opinion. Sure, and that's so, that's kind of uh, that's kind of my answer too. Yeah. I would I would explain it as um, that. Okay, Paul Paul may not have been quote unquote inspired. Um, but well, I think if, that, that part of this, part of the misunderstanding, maybe, or, or what makes this difficult, is when we talk about inspiration, people mistakenly get the idea that, you know, I don't know, maybe they think Paul's sitting down and like 
he just puts his hand to paper and God is, is moving his hand and Mind controlling you know, some, him. some sort of like reverse Ouija board thing, maybe, um, <laughs> which isn't what we're talking about. Right. Um, that a, as Paul wrote, he was moved by the Holy spirit to write. So he was prompted by God. He was, he was directed by God, not as some automaton who's, who's being, whose hand is being moved. Um, so actually this is, what you see here, I think, is transparency behind the process. Um, this well, is would, insight into the fact that that it's it's uh, it's reliable and it's inspired by God, not a contradiction of that fact. Well, and I, I would I would explain it maybe a little bit differently. Um, and I, it's 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 really maybe the way that we define inspire. Um, how how I have tried to reconcile this is by saying that. Let's just say Paul was not inspired when he gave his opinion. Okay. But the fact that he wasn't inspired doesn't mean that what he wrote was not what God wanted him to write. Okay. So Paul said, God is letting me write this. Uh, and I, you should believe me because I'm trustworthy. So if, if, if Paul was writing something, even, even if he was not technically inspired, but God was letting him give his opinion, um, as someone trustworthy, then that's really the same thing as saying that what he wrote, even though not inspired necessarily, what he wrote is exactly what, what God wanted him to write. God approved of his opinion and let him include it in the text. So, you know, like, just because it was his opinion doesn't make it untrue. And it doesn't mean that we have to say, well, geez, if Paul gave his opinion, we we need to be aware of this. Well, no. Um, Paul was an apostle, and Paul. Um, that's some three D chess thinking right there. That's that's very deep and profound, and I feel like I need I'm not, to pipe I'm not in trying my to be. To I just, that's, that's just that's kind of the way that I'm. That's kind of the way that I'm. I'm. I'm processing it. Um, maybe, maybe I'm well, just I, a a chess genius um, in a scriptural way. I don't know. I believe well, first you are. of all, we should play chess sometime. If you're a chess genius, I'd like to find that out. Uh, but second of all, I think that the um, uh, Greg, I like the word that you use. That transparency. Um, I think it's really neat that God, I believe that this was inspired, that, that uh, I, I agree. Paul wasn't just, God wasn't just using his hand. Like he's, this is written, uh, in Paul's own, uh, personality and, you know, the personality of these human instruments that God inspired all 40 plus of them through, from, from beginning of Genesis through the end of revelation. Um, you know, they're, they're what God inspired through them bears the marks of these human authors, but also bears the mark of a divine author. And I am so thankful to read in our book when an apostle, even someone who has the authority to command, is honest enough to say the scripture doesn't say, God didn't say, and I'm giving you my opinion. And I think that that's one of those areas that it would be very healthy and worthwhile if many leaders would still have that. Like, I think that God inspired that for a purpose, that when Paul is now going beyond what is written, he can say, look, I don't have a command from the Lord, but I'm going to tell you what I think is right what I think you should do. And a lot of times, Eric, especially you and I as pastors, I'm sure, Greg, you get this to some degree as well uh, as a faithful member of a body. Um, but as pastors, people come to me all the time, like, what do you think I should do about this situation? And some pastors might go, well, thus saith the Lord. I've heard from the Lord explicitly. Well, if you, if you, you better be right about that. If you're going to say that, that that strongly. But I say a lot of the times, you know, I, I don't know of a script scripture verse that tells you exactly what you need to do in this particular case. There are some things that 
that um, the Bible does tell you exactly what you should do. There are other things that I, I go, mm, this is going beyond what is written. And, and we've prayed about it. You've prayed about it. I've prayed about it. I'll give you my opinion. And I do think, hopefully, that I'm someone who's trustworthy. Um, maybe not as trustworthy as Paul, but, but hopefully trustworthy enough. You're at least asking my opinion. But I'm also giving you my opinion. And as Paul, that, the, the context of that, I didn't look it up, but the context of that, he's talking about whether they should get married or not get married. Is yes. that right? I think so, yeah. Whether, whether, yeah. Well, whether, uh, in particular, whether a father should give his, his young virgin daughter in marriage or whether yeah. the father should withhold. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, in, in, in regards to that, you know, the opinion of modern culture has gone the opposite way. They think everybody should get married no matter what. And if you don't get married, something's wrong with you. Paul's opinion was opposite. You know, he was a single guy and he said, in, in many ways, it's better for you not to get married because you can spend all your time uh, pursuing the things of the Lord. Um, but the scripture doesn't say thou shalt get married or thou shalt remain single. Like it, it does allow for some, some variance, in which case Paul was inspired by God to be truthful because if he didn't include that word, which is interesting, like think about it all this, 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 all this time after the fact, then we would take that as if that is what God's word is. Uh, a father should not give his daughter in marriage. Um, I have five daughters. Should then I say, well, I can't, I can't give any of them in marriage. Um, well, it's his, that's his opinion for those people. And so then that allows for us to understand, well, well, my search circumstances, Greg, your circumstances with your daughters, they might be different and that's okay. We're not violating scripture if we violate what he just wrote because he told us in scripture that this was his opinion. And he was speaking to a very particular group of people about that, which I think is like a, I don't know. I think that that's a really neat thing. So I first and foremost want to acknowledge when I'm speaking my opinion, <laughs> a lot of times I have opinions and I'm speculating and, it, and I'm, and as I'm much as I opinion. like Paul's humility there, I also like his sarcastic, you know, acid tongue when he needs to use like, yeah. Praise God, we've been given the example that it's okay to say, you know what, you know, curse them that they ought to, they ought to mutilate themselves. Yeah. Um, you, you could, especially tone of voice is interesting. I talk about this with uh, people fairly frequently. Tone of voice is not inspired. So when we read this, uh, when he says, and I, I give you my opinion, as someone who is trustworthy, there is a good possibility he's using a bit of that acid tongue right there too. Uh, you, you should listen to what I'm saying, <laughs> is, what, is, what, is I think what, is, what he's telling them. And you know, another way to... to Another way to explain it is like earlier in the chapter, I think it's First Corinthians, it's like seven ten or seven eleven, where Paul says, um, "You know, what I'm telling you, this is not from the Lord; it's from me, from I." Um, he's talking about, of course, marriage and remarriage and things like that. And when he says this is not from the Lord, I think what he means is just simply, Jesus simply never addressed this specifically during his earthly ministry. But when he says, this is from me, um, you know, he, he could simply be saying, yes, I'm not quoting Jesus on this, but if Jesus did discuss this topic, this is what he would say about it. And so he can say, this is not from the Lord, meaning Christ simply never, I mean, there were, there were subjects Christ never addressed because it just never came up. Um, but then there were other things that he did address. So when Paul says, you know, it's not from the Lord, it's from me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really necessarily mean it's not from God, but it could just simply mean, you know, I'm, what I'm saying, if Christ were here giving you um, his thoughts on it, this is what he would say, even though he never addressed it in the past. So that's, that's just another way to, 
to look at it. Amen. Uh, so I guess I'm right. I mean, there's no objection. So I guess I, I, I guess I had to, I I object out of principle then. Oh, okay. (laughs) Just, just for the sake of conversation. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, other issues or questions, you know, Eric, that you've heard, uh, maybe we, uh, we oh, settled many. again, not settled, but uh, at least discuss that one. Uh, uh, give us the next one you got. Well, this is one that, uh, that I myself wrestled with in the past. Um, and I, I've come to a conclusion on it, but Paul seemed to believe that Christ would return in his own day. And there's, um, there's probably know, around 10 examples of this in scripture. One example Really quick, I'll, I'll just turn there and read it because I don't want to butcher it. Um, I don't have it memorized. But in uh, in First Thessalonians chapter four, where Paul's talking about uh, he's talking about actually the, the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. He says in First Thessalonians four, verse seventeen, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now he's Paul seems to be saying there that he expected to be alive when Christ returned uh, at his second coming, and if that's the case, then it sounds like he expected Christ to return in his own day. And what's funny is that seems like such a presumption, right? Like as I read that text, I don't, I don't see any, and this might, just, this is probably just the answer, right? It doesn't say that Paul doesn't say, and I expect to be there. He says, we who remain, those of us Christians, those people who remain at the Lord's coming, this is what's going to happen to, to that. We, um, well, that's a possibility. I, I, I mean, there's, I, I there's probably I don't read 10 that in the text, text where he says similar things, but, but he, but I think it can be, I guess you're right. It could be interpreted in more than one way. We could say that we is kind of more of a generic word that just means whoever is alive. Um, and, you know, is left, um, at the, you know, when Christ comes back at that time, whoever's there will be caught up uh, to meet the Lord. That's one possible way to look at it. Another, another way to look at it is uh, when he says we, he's including himself, and he, he's actually saying that, that he expected Christ uh, to return. I mean, there's other texts, too, like where, um, you know, Paul says the, the hour is near. It's, it's near. Um, John said similar things. Peter said similar things. So I, I don't know. The impression I get from the from the apostles in their their epistles is that they they were um, expecting Jesus to return in their own day. Could I be wrong? Could I be misinterpreting those? That's entirely possible. Maybe they maybe they were not expecting that. But but well, that it, is it, that is the great thing that we wrestle with, right? Um, because the hour that Christ is returning has not been revealed. We all live in this anticipation. And so um, because they were wrong, uh, well, the fact that they didn't say Christ is coming back within my lifetime is another example of the fact that this was inspired. They live with this great, great anticipation, not knowing when, but hopeful that, that he would. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. the, The problem would be if Paul said, yeah, I know. For a fact that Christ is going to return and I'm going to be still alive, that would present the problem. Not that he lived with this great expectation and hope that that it's a possibility. And that's kind of how I've answered it too. Is I, I think that 
Paul and the other apostles and, and the other Christians were basically just doing what Jesus said to do, be on the alert, uh, be, be looking uh, for the second coming. Now, Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said he didn't even know when he was going to return. That's what Jesus said. So uh, Jesus, Jesus did not give a, a time uh, that he was going to return. He did describe, or he seemed to describe certain events um, that would precede a second coming, but um, but he never gave a he never gave a, a time frame. He never said, "Well, at you know at this time, um, you know on this day I'm going to return." He left it open ended, and I think the the apostles, when they uh, if they were assuming that Jesus was going to return in their day, well, really, I mean, they were just kind of doing what Jesus said. You're to look forward to this. You're to you're to hope for this. You're to anticipate this. But when it was going to happen remained an open question. So when Paul and the others talk about Christ coming back in their day, and I, I think they probably uh, did think that, they it wasn't like they were declaring a doctrine. Like, Christ is going to return in our day, but they were what they were saying is true. Christ is going to return. And that was the whole, that's the whole point. We don't know when he's going to return, but we know for a fact he will return because he said he would. So I, I kind of look at it as the, the, you know, the expectation that Christ would return in the first century is not the important thing. The important thing is they were expecting Christ to come back because they had very good reason to believe that he was going to. And I think that's what we need to focus on. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think every, every generation of Christians ought to live as if Christ will return very uh, imminently, uh, like a thief in the night. We should be ready. And we shouldn't be surprised if uh, if we live our entire lives and then we uh, go to our graves before he returns, uh, because that's what every generation of Christians has experienced uh, up until this point. But one generation uh, will have that expectation fulfilled. I have to say, though, on a side note, I'm just really excited to hear Greg advocating for the doctrine of the uh, of the uh, rapture. So I really appreciate that. Uh, when did you hear that? Uh, I, just, I mean, you're talking about uh, we're talking about the rapture and you're uh, we're talking about when, uh, when Christ returns. That's yeah, a, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. What, what are you, where are you going with this? No, nice try, Jude. Once just, again, putting this, words this in my mouth. I was taking a jab. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, <laughs> going I was just trying to get spoken. you riled up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, it was my interpretation of it, you guys. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, no, I thought, well, Eric, maybe I thought that, that was, maybe, maybe Joe's misinterpretation raises another great point about inerrancy. Um, <laughs> hey, that's a good point. Maybe we should get into that. Let's do yeah, it. Go yeah. ahead, Eric. What do you, what do you got for, for misinterpretations and, well, I won't pick on Joe specifically. Um, you can. That's all right. I can. At least I can speak for myself since I'm here and have a microphone and everything. True. Yeah. Um, well, and, and Greg, you actually touched on this earlier, and I think you're right, that we, we need to be careful that we're not um, elevating our interpretations to the point of Scripture. Uh, scripture is, um, Scripture means what it means. Uh, and I think the most important thing when you're studying scripture, the most important thing is not to ask yourself, what does this mean to me? The most important thing to ask yourself is, what did this mean when the author wrote it? What did he mean by it? What does God mean by it? What we think it means is is not, I mean, obviously we have to come to a conclusion, or at least on, on some things we have to come to conclusions. But we dare not elevate our interpretations uh, to the point of of being you know, inspired by God and inerrant. I think that's dangerous. I think we need to be, I think we need to be humble when we go to scripture and open to the fact that 
you know, maybe I need to look at this differently. Maybe I need to, uh, you know, maybe I need to not assume, um, you know, yeah, this le- means lest what I we, think it means. lest we be like Satan and misinterpret scripture, right. Um, as he did, yes. um, in his temptation of Christ, you know, just because Satan, uh, misinterpreted it, didn't, didn't present a problem with the text, the text, the text was true and right. He just twisted it. And, and there are plenty that we can see in our day and, you know, it, it's happened. It's happened since the beginning that that God's word has been misinterpreted. And when I say the beginning, I I mean since the garden, what God has said has been twisted and misinterpreted and misapplied um, to much harm. But well, I think you bring up a good problem point with what God Satan. said. Right. You, I think that was a good a good point you brought about Satan because, yeah, in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan, Satan uses scripture to try and get Christ to disobey God, God the Father. And uh and he he quotes scripture, he says, Hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you do this? And um notice that Jesus combats this temptation with scripture. This so he there's a misinterpretation of scripture that Satan uses, and then Christ um combats it by having the correct interpretation of scripture. So like you said, the, the the problem is not with the text. The problem is with the interpreter. And Satan, of course, was, I'm sure, deliberately deliberately misinterpreting the text, trying to... Probably wasn't uh, an accident. <laughs> I doubt it was an accident. I think it was calculated, yeah. He was trying to get Christ to, to disobey. Um, and uh, Christ um, knew the correct interpretation and was able to continue doing the will of the Father. So, yeah, that's, that's important. And I think that, because some people might ask, well... You know, if the Bible is inspired by God, was Satan's interpretation of Scripture inspired by God? Well, uh, I think in one sense it was. I think God wanted us to see that Scripture can be misused, that Satan twists Scripture to try and deceive us. Um, and uh, and I think I think I think the Bible is exactly the way God wants it. I think the 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 temptation there. Um, and Satan's misinterpretation misinterpretation of Scripture is very useful to us to be aware of how we're interpreting Scripture because we can be deceived and even deceive ourselves at times. And what a great example we see in Christ there, as um, he was only able to combat that he chose to combat that um, by using his his well rounded full knowledge of Scripture. And so, how much more important should it be for us? Um, as we are faced with false doctrines, twisting the, of the text, that we have a well-rounded, full-throated knowledge of what God has said so that we can properly interpret it. Um, you know, so much, I mean, let's face it, every, every heresy out there, every, um, every Gnostic, crazy, goofy thing that we see going on all over the world, inside and outside of the church, could be resolved by a proper understanding of Scripture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and properly reading scripture together, Jesus had uh, an awareness that scripture does not contradict itself. And so, um, you know, maybe it's a, a, I'm not trying to be pedantic or nitpicky. I, I, I said in a sermon once from Matthew chapter four, that the devil misinterpreted scripture and a guy afterwards came up to me and said, what was the misinterpretation? Um, and I had a hard time, at least then articulating exactly what the mis. Certainly, it's misapplied. Yeah, misapplication. Um, you know, he says, if, if you are 
the Messiah, which Jesus is. That's the correct interpretation. Then now he applies it incorrectly. And Jesus replies saying, well, scripture actually says this. The context so, was, he was, he was yeah. taking it out of context. Yeah. And so that idea that scripture doesn't contradict itself, that it is not uh, in error, um, also includes this idea, though, that, that scripture will faithfully record the errors of some people. So the, the fact that the devil was making an error, probably on purpose, with the attempt to deceive, uh, it faithfully records the error and the proper response. And it's why we require so much context, and, and it, it really does... Um, for those who want to try and criticize the Bible without really actually reading it or taking the time to understand it, it's why they demonstrate themselves to be so foolish over and over again, because they, they rip things out of context. And, and really for anybody who, you know, it, it convinces those who are already, you know, skeptical and looking for a reason to disbelieve, oh, okay, these soft-headed Christians, they believe all this dumb stuff by these Bronze Age sheep herders written all these thousands of years ago, you know, we're so much smarter now. Um, but they're criticizing something that they really don't know anything about. And if you read it in its context, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time, you actually have to read like the chapter before and then the full chapter and the chapter afterwards to really understand what's going on. But when you take it on what's being said, you realize, oh, these aren't contradictory at all. And and Greg, you, you made a great point. It doesn't say, I will remain alive and everybody who's with me, who's also alive with me being alive. Like, like sometimes we read something and it's like, well, it could mean that, but then all right, it didn't go that way. So let me go back and, and read. What assumptions am I making about this text that are making me think that it says something that it doesn't actually say? And uh, for me, like with I mentioned the, some of the, uh, I'll call them discrepancies in the Gospels. You have these different perspectives being written about the same events. And sometimes my mind will make an assumption when it says that this happened afterwards, that it means it happens immediately afterwards. Like he did this and then he immediately did this without realizing that I can tell stories and say that, you know, I went uh, to work and then I went to the store and there's a 10 hour gap, you know, in between those events, which by context you would maybe understand. Um, but I didn't mean that I like, like I, I drove to work and then I immediately drove to the store. Like that's not, that's not what that means, but I can make that assumption. And so is the authority me as the interpreter that when I read something, it has to mean exactly what I think it means. And then if something else contradicts it, I go, ah, I'm always right. This must be wrong. Or do we have the humility to realize, actually, this is probably right. And if I'm seeing some difficulty, I'm probably wrong. And so what am I misunderstanding? What assumptions am I making? Or what, what preconceived notions am I bringing into this? Um, what, am I, what am I imposing into the text that isn't actually there? And Sometimes that, that takes a while. And if you're skeptical, you're never going to take the time to do it. You're just going to look. And it takes humility, oh, too. It does. Because um, I've one had of the, so many passages where I realized I was in, assuming something, and the text doesn't actually say it. And part of the time, it even takes conversations like this, where you talk about somebody who sees it differently, where you can say, all right, it seems so clear to me, but let me read it based on what you're saying. And maybe, maybe your view fits better than mine. And maybe I should get rid of that. Or maybe your view has a problem, but my view has a problem, but maybe there's some view that both of us should adopt. Um, and that humility and that willingness to realize like, okay, I, I do trust because Jesus is faithful, because he's defeated death, that he's right. And if God inspired this, he's right. I can be wrong about a lot of stuff. Um, and so I'm right when I agree with what God says. But when I get it wrong, I should be very quick to say, oh, I was wrong about that. God's word was actually right the whole time. And I just, I was, I was misreading it. Sorry. Greg, I, was it Augustine oh. that, that said, uh, 
I think it was I think it was Augustine. I'm not a huge Augustine fan, but um, he said some clever things every now and then. You should. Be. And one of one of the things he uh, one of the things he said I think was, if you find an error in Scripture, it's you that's an error. Hmm. Um, so I think that's yeah. a a good a good rule to to go by. No, I was just gonna. I mean, I, amen to what you said, Joe. And I think one of the prime or a great example. And I'm gonna pick on both sides, so I'm not. But as we've had recent conversations about the book of revelation um it's one of the markers that you'll see over and over in in revelation is then i saw and then i saw um and on one side of the misinterpretation or one side of the argument one one team will say well that that means what came before it has to be the the chronological next step and we get something wrong potentially the other side says well, no, um, every time you see a then I saw, it has to be completely divorced from uh, the chronological what what just happened. Um, and so taking the then I saw and figuring out when it should be in your mind chronologically preceding what just came before it, I think therein lies so many of our misunderstandings and disagreements about the book of Revelation. Yeah, I think um, Joe's got something to say. like the look on his face is he's he's. Do you disagree that 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 creates our our disagreements? No, I don't disagree. I think that oh. uh, you know the the some of the rules you know that we put in. Um, you know, I'll just add a third caveat. Maybe it's not uh, either or, but both and. Maybe sometimes, and then I saw is sequential, and then I saw does take us back in time, and it requires. Oh, that's exactly. A, a I, I'm trying to make that. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't make it as clear as that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But other than one, that, I mean, 100 percent. No, I'm not disagreeing at all. Yeah. yeah. No, these are the types of issues, the interpretive issues, where the text itself doesn't change. So I'm, I'm with you. Um, I mean, we're not. Uh, this isn't our revelation video, so I'm. And I wasn't I'm, trying to argue. I'm just giving yeah. an example yeah. of where I was our being quiet. That you try to pull me, yeah, you pull that, me back that, in. You know, <laughs> the, the, the set of your lips told me that you were wanting to to say something. So. I, I want to um, just just share something just briefly, and I I want um, I want to go back to the gospels. Now, first of all, let me just say this because some people claim that you know the the gospels contradict each other. I don't believe they do. I believe that the information in the gospels is complementary, not contradictory. I believe that the information can be harmonized. I don't think there's any <clears throat> I see no reason to believe that there's any contradictions. Um but let me just give you just a hypothetical here. Let's just assume and maybe there's somebody watching going, you know, I just can't believe that the gospels don't contradict. They're, they I I think they contradict somewhat. Um this is the uh, this is an analogy that I use to just help make a point. And again, I'm not saying the gospels contradict. I don't believe they do. But for those that just can't get over the idea that they they might contradict or they do contradict, uh, let me give an analogy. And I'll use you, Greg, and you, Joe, um, just because you're here. Uh, but suppose you two are walking down the street, and all of a sudden you see this man running out of the bank with a ski mask on, a gun in one hand and a bag of money in the other hand, and he jumps into a car and speeds off. Is it 2020? What? Is it 2020? If a man comes out of a bank, it matters if he's wearing a mask, if it's 2020 or not. 
uh, it's schema. It's schema. It's a ski mask. It's a ski mask. It's not a COVID mask or whatever it is. Okay, I was just curious because like uh, this, uh, I've heard this analogy before, but it was always before 2020. But then I remember oh, okay. going into the bank and everybody's wearing masks in the bank now. All of a sudden, forgive me, uh, I should have specified. So, I all right, I was just was, it, for the sake of clarity, I just wanted to know what's going on. So anyway, you ruined it. So let me back up. Um, <laughs> he usually does. So the guy guy runs out of a mask with a ski mask. mask. A gun in one hand and a bag of money in the other hand. He jumps into a car, speeds off. Shortly after that, a police officer comes up to you and he says, uh, hey, you guys saw what happened. Why don't you just tell me what you saw? And Greg says, I saw a guy run out of a bank with a ski mask, gun in one hand and bag of money in the other hand. He jumped into a black getaway car, took off. Joe, you say, yeah, I saw the guy run out of the bank. Uh, He jumped into a blue getaway car and sped off. And the police officer says, Wait a minute. Greg's saying he jumped into a black car. Joe, you're saying he jumped into a blue car. Based on this contradiction, I, I've come to the conclusion that the bank was never robbed. Now, nobody in their right mind would ever come to that conclusion. Because the fact of the matter is, even if there are seemingly contradictory details, the fact is the money's missing out of the bank. The people saw the guy rob the bank. You saw him run out of the bank. The fact that you can't agree on the color of the getaway car is irrelevant. And likewise, even if, hypothetically, even if uh, there's not, you know, if, if there were not universal agreement on, you know, when the women got to the tomb or, um, you know, how many angels were there or whatever, I mean, just pick, you know, pick these whatever uh, supposed contradictions people claim are in the, in the gospels. The fact of the matter is the tomb was empty on. I, I'll on be Easter honest. Morning. I don't, I don't like your, your analogy um, only because it, it presents like factual differences. Um, I think it was Orson Scott card uh, author who I first used this term. You guys know the term parallax. Um, you know, if you're looking at your, um, you're looking at your speedometer, and you know you, you say oh i'm i'm going 70 miles an hour and i'm sitting next to you i look at your speedometer i say oh you're only going 55 it's beca- it's it's because we're viewing things from two different angles so well and that's it, but that's that um, but that's exactly why in the beginning i said i'm using this is hypothetical i'm presupposing that that there you know let's i was saying if there were to be contradictions in the gospels i'm not saying there are oh, i i understand so the the only point that I'm trying to make is is I read the gospels some things that I want to keep in mind so that I account for the parallax of people telling this story um from different human perspectives you know whether it be physical or what you know, whatever it happens to be um the fact that it's an inter- it'd be an interesting example to have you know if you're if you're married listening to this have you and your wife uh, write down an account of your wedding day and um or your husband whatever the case may be write down an account of your wedding day and look at the differences of your stories right you you've experienced this from two different points of view a lot of times in the in the synoptic gospels we'll get a retelling you know we'll get two different tellings of a story and we automatically assume that 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 is that has to be a record of the same event like jesus said x y and z well he might have said that multiple times and luke could be recording it from a from 
you know, one instance and, and Mark could be recording it from another instance. So mm -hmm. there's, there's so many things to take into account um, that we, we think we have to harmonize it perfectly in any, every place that it doesn't harmonize there, that must be a, be an error. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, and I don't think you're I, ever going to get a factual, like the car, of course, you're not going to get a, the car was blue in, in the scripture. Um, but I, but I'd be interested to find a point in scripture where somebody, a, a, a detractor from inerrancy or inspiration would say, look, here is a factual recording of something we know to be the same thing that are recorded differently. Well, there well, are, the, there it, are examples. Is, Sorry. Wow. Go, go ahead. Well, you know, I, I, I use that analogy for the sake of people who might be asking themselves, because I've talked to people that are, that have been in this situation and they're, they, they think, you know, I just can't, <clears throat> I just can't believe that everything in the Gospels is 100% harmonizable, if that's a word. Um, it, I, I, so they would say that... To be brought to harmony. <laughs> yeah, they can't, they can't get over the fact that, like, to them, it seems like there are contradictions. But these, some of these people will ask, well, but can I, can I still be a Christian, even if I'm wrestling with some of these, what I believe are inconsistencies? And what I would say to that person is, I think you can still have faith in Jesus Christ. You can still believe Jesus died and rose again, even if you are wrestling with um, the idea that there, there, to them, seem to be inconsistencies in the Gospels. I don't think you have to, I don't think a person has to believe in that in order to have saving faith, if that makes any sense. Um, because I, I think if I think maybe in some cases Christians might be putting a roadblock in in their way if they're uh, if they're going about it that way. I would say yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. You don't have to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible to believe on Christ and be saved. Um, this is it's not what I would call an essential doctrine. Now I believe the more you read and the the more you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're going to come to that conclusion and you'll you'll hold that conviction. Um, for sure, this isn't um, sola scriptura. I, I don't know how you be how you're saved without holding to sola scriptura, but I don't think it's a prerequisite to salvation. And that's kind of the main point I was yeah. I was trying to make. Yeah, well, I I agree with both you guys, and I I do think that there are some again who might be watching. And, and Eric, I appreciate your again pastoral concern for those who might find some uh, examples that they would think are similar to what you're describing. That was the car blue or was the car black. These are actual material contradictions. And I, I had, I, I say this not even just as a theoretical thing or from somebody I talked to this, um, uh, was real in my personal walk with the Lord. Um, I remember, um, when I was in seminary having to do a paper on, uh, reconciling, uh, Jesus's final week and the events just, just in that aspect of the, of the gospels and trying to um, do my own harmonization. And there are a number of factors that, um, you know, I'm sure that they're on these websites. It's contradictory. One says the rooster crowed, one says the rooster crowed twice. Well, which was it? Was it once or twice? Some says that a, a slave girl uh, uh, talked to Peter. Others say it was a, a guy. Was, was it a boy or was it a girl? Which, which was it? And, and so you get these types of difficulties that to go, those are material contradictions. And um, some of those I thought were very easy to reconcile. Um, the number of angels. Does it ever say only one angel? 
Well, it doesn't. And then understanding that, especially from the Old Testament background, um, you, you guys remember when uh, uh, in Exodus, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. It actually says Moses went up with his assistant, Joshua, and then Joshua disappears. And it's just Moses and God, Moses and God, Moses and God, Moses and God. And then they, Moses and Joshua, come down from the mountain. And so it's very common for the, the biblical authors to focus on uh, the speaker or the main figure and even to allow everybody else to recede into the background. And so our assumptions become, well, if they said, if one says one angel said this and another says there were two angels, it doesn't say there was only one angel. Well, it never says there was only one angel. And so actually both can be true, especially if one angel does the majority of the talking. And, and skeptics might, you know, they go, I, I don't believe that. But if we're being at least fair with the text, or if a police officer was asking people of their accounts, they'd say, well, you know, that is, that is a fair reckoning of what eyewitness testimony would, would describe. And then when we think about the rooster crow, for example, I remember thinking about that. If you guys were driving down the, like a farm road, country road, and you heard a rooster crowing, how do you quantify what you heard? You know, how, how many times do you count the root to do to do? It's like, if it goes root to do to do, root to do to do, was that one or two? Like, how do you quantify that? And that's a real question. Right? If it goes root to do to do. Yeah, root to do do. What do you, how do you quantify that? And so maybe there's some real scientific answer to that. Maybe some, you know, some, some doctor of roosterology or something like that knows what the answer is. But if we're talking about these are real people that say the rooster crowed, they might hear the same thing. And one might say, and the rooster crowed. And they go, oh, he crowed twice. And then you go, those, those aren't contradictory, even though it seems like a material falsehood. The other gospels say that the crowd was saying this. And then, so, so a crowd is saying this and then, yeah, you, you were with him. Yeah, that's right. I saw him with you. And, and one might say a slave girl said it. And then they say a guy said it. And you go, well, which one was it? It was the crowd. The crowd was saying things. And so when you start to read them and understand these details, you go, this isn't, these are actual eyewitness testimonies getting to similar to the example that you gave. I, I don't mind the example that you gave as much. Now, in one of those cases, in, in your example, I think this is maybe where Greg's pushing back. One of us is at least is wrong. It can't be both blue and black at the same time, unless it has some like that, that's that's pain. where I was. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and that's and that's why that's why in the beginning, I, I hastened to to say that yes. I'm, before I'm, I, I rudely interrupted you. Well, I, I'm pre before I, I rudely I in the wrong. analogy. I was presupposing that there there were problems in the gospel, which I do not believe there are. I think Joe, everything you just said, I completely agree. Um. But I'm just saying hypothetically, you know, if there if there were. But um, basically, what you're saying, Joe, and I think this is really important, and this would be important for someone who's wrestling with seeming uh, contradictions in the Gospels, is not including all the information is not a contradiction. If you if you mention, um, you know, one angel rather than two, that's that's not a contradiction. That you only mentioned one because leaving out the other angel doesn't contradict the fact that there that there was an angel there. So I think we need to be careful how we're um, defining contradictions. Um, and some some people some people don't recognize that what they're claiming is a contradiction is is no contradiction at all because it's 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 truth it's truth that's being presented, but yet not all the truth. But that doesn't make it. That doesn't make par partial truth is not false. 
Can I digress a little bit? Sure. Can I make one point on this before you digress? It'll be very brief. Sure. Uh, Because, Eric, I'm in full agreement with what you said. And I think that, you know, I I used to do this. So I say this as as someone who did it. Sometimes we can be very ungracious. um, And when we're ungracious, we hold it to a standard that we wouldn't hold anything else to. And so, you know, I, I, anytime you tell a story, the amount of details that you leave out is greater than the amount of details that you include. Absolutely. And so, I mean, that's just the way that it is. None of us are saying, and the, the room was this temperature and it was this time and now it was this time. Like you, you, there's so much that we're leaving out. And so to focus on one angel isn't saying there was one angel and only one angel. There were not two angels. There was one angel. It was only one angel. And the angel said, that's not what, the, that's not what it says. And so when people are, are saying, oh, it's a contradiction, you're being ungracious. And so I don't want to do that to the Bible. I don't want to do that to anything. If I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm hearing you guys out, right, Greg, you and I, we disagree on, on Revelation. I don't want to be ungracious to you in the way that I'm hearing you out. If you and I are talking to uh, a Muslim or to a Mormon or to, to an atheist, I, I don't want to be ungracious to them. I want to actually hear them out. And truth uh, should be able to prevail. So uh, that was anyway, before you digress, I just wanted to, to throw that out there, but uh, uh, feel free to digress. My okay, friend. excellent. So, you know, as you talk about, you know, was, was Moses up on the mountain, was, you know, um, recording who was there, how many were there? One area that I find this hilarious that we, we do this in is discipleship, right? We, we talk about, we look at the Bible and we say, you know, Paul and Timothy, you know, that is the disciple, discipleship one-on-one. Where do we ever see that Paul discipled Timothy alone in a room outside of the context with Luke or Apollos or Silvanus or whoever was it? We just assume that Paul and Timothy had a one-on-one thing going and that's how, how it was. So it's just, it's one of those things that always like, whenever I hear someone talk about, Oh, the Paul and Timothy model, like really Greg, they met at a coffee shop. They read the Bible once through per year and they, they discipled each other, talked about their wives and family, especially Paul. They love talking about his wife and family. Yeah. They met at uh, fish (laughs) fish box back then. (laughs) Jesus. And, uh, yeah, um, so it's just, it's just one of those areas that that always just I, I just kind of roll my eyes whenever somebody wants to talk about the Paul and Timothy model. Like, so Greg wait. hates Greg hates discipleship. And he's I got hate one on one discipleship. I think it's evil. It's of the devil. <laughs> okay. Oh boy, that was a digression. All right. Well, um, let's get you. us back on track. Eric, you have other uh, other things that you've heard as a pastor for us to discuss uh, while we're here to get, together. Yes, today? and this is probably the biggest one of all. Um, this this is one that probably deserves an entire episode by itself, but um, we, we have some time to talk about it today. I bet you Greg can answer it in 30 seconds or less. Greg, Greg can nail this one right out of the ballpark. Um, so um, the, the question is, with all the advances in modern science, and I use the word science loosely, um, with all the advancements in modern science, I think Christians are really, especially Christians that are in in college, they're really being pressured into um, believing things that uh, seem to contradict Scripture. For example, uh, the universe is 14 or 15 billion years old. The world is 4 point something billion years old. Um, And maybe more importantly than that even is the belief that uh, man evolved uh, from, you know, the cell. And, uh, and so man is, has gone through, um, all these different stages to become who he is today. So, uh, with all, with all these 
these things being just pounded so hard into people, especially, like I said, the kids going to college and this is all they hear. Um, how should how should Christians approach this issue? I mean, if, if there are discoveries in modern science that seem to be contradicting like Genesis and maybe other things in scripture, um, how should Christians go about approaching that issue? Yeah. Challenge accepted. My less than 30 second answer, science is dumb. <laughs> now, my, my, my longer than 30 second answer. Um, we, we have gotten to a point in our society where, where science is a God who speaks. Science says, um, you know, Dr. Fauci, I am the science. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm not joking there, right? Um, What we've forgotten is that when science speaks, it is scientists who are doing the speaking, right? Uh, These are are people who also have epistemological uh, presuppositions, who, who presume certain things and, and, and test and act and make judgments based upon uh, what they hold to be self-evident truths or, or pre-held truths. So many of these things that we talk about, like, you know, evolution and big bang and whatnot, like we have just thrown out what is true science, right? Um, science, science was supposed to be a way to test hypotheses by by repetition and observation, um, you know, I, I've heard that that according to the big uh, that scientists now say they can look back prior to the Big Bang. They can look back in time before time began. Really? Okay. Um, evolution. You know, you listen to evolutionists long enough, they talk about the missing link. Okay. So you mean you actually are missing the evidence that shows what you hold to be a factual presupposition that there were these change in kinds. If we're talking about macro evolution versus micro, you know, people change a little bit over time versus people were once, you know, slime on the bottom of some primordial pond. Um, so I would say this, when, when you look at the science, what you're really talking about is you're looking at conclusions of people um, who may or may not hold correct worldviews so much and it's it's just been accelerated so much of what science said 10 15 20 years ago now says something different um so what should that tell you well that should tell you that what you need is is an infallible standard rather than the fallible standard of conclusions of of men and women and so um stick if you're in college and you're going well my my biology professor says the scientists say this. Well, I'll tell you what, you, you've been on this earth uh, probably about 20 years. If, if that's the case, you're in college. Stick around another 20 and just wait and see what they tell you in 20 years. Like our scientists are literally telling us today that you can change from a man to a woman based upon your decision. That's absolutely absurd. And you would have been laughed out of a college or university 50, 100, 200, 300 year, 20 years ago, you've been laughed out of a school for that being your quote unquote science. So don't place your confidence in the conclusions of fallible humans. Seek, seek a, a, a truth based on a, an epistemology 
that is more reliable than the conclusions of men. Yeah, well said. Science I, is dumb. Science is dumb. <laughs> well, well, that's that's all that needs to be Hashtag. said. Um, yeah, I, I no, I totally agree, Greg. I think that the maybe the most important point is to recognize that science isn't this thing that's outside of ourselves that is c- communicating, you know, this infallible truth. And I think people have elevated science to the point of God status, where, where science is a being outside of ourselves that is telling us all of this, this infallible information. And the fact of the matter is science isn't really a thing. Science is just the conclusions of man um, after man has At best it was meant made to some be a observations tool used or, by man, right? Yeah. At best, or maybe not a, even, maybe in the absence of observations. by men. Yes. Yeah, so um, science is, uh, scientific conclusions are dependent on human reasoning. And human reasoning uh, is fallible. And, it, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me how, um, you know, evolutionists were talking so tough about how, oh, evolution, it's, Darwinian evolution is a fact. If you don't believe that, you're a moron. Uh, you don't believe in science. You, you can't even think. Uh, how foolish you are. It's interesting. I, I had heard recently Thomas Nagel, who is a atheist, as far as I know, um, atheist, uh, uh, PhD. He came out with a book recently where he admitted, he said, um, the book is about why Darwinian evolution is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> and, and here, and here is, um, you know, this is, this is a guy that basically, you know, he was he was part of a group that was basically saying, well, if you challenge Darwinian evolution, you are a unscientific, unthinking fool. And they just keep trumpeting this, and they talk so boldly about it. And the fact is that, uh, and if you, honestly, if you, um, uh, I've, I've heard many, um, you know, PhD biologists, scientists um, admit that we need to come up with a different theory. Darwinian evolution is not adequate to explain um, explain life. It doesn't work. The steps that have to be taken in order to arrive um, at you know at where we're at now, it's it is it's it's impossible to explain that through Darwinian evolution. The mechanisms don't work. Um, Science changes. God doesn't bow the knee to Christ, right? Like. What what is you, you want to hear an in, an inviolable law? Um, a cannot be not a at the same time. There's logic. There's a, there's a scientific principle, if you will. Right? It, something cannot be one thing and not that thing at the same time. And yet, science today would claim that. Well, so, you know what they claim so, too. So bow the knee to Christ. Scientists claim well, like we're, we're we go by science, which means we just go by fact. Okay, wait a minute here. Um, Scientists have been trying to explain the origin of the universe, and actually, scientists—the uh, atheist ones, anyway—have been freaked out by the discoveries of uh, the fine-tuning of the universe. And the fine-tuning basically is just that there are certain physical constants, like gravity, uh, electromagnetism, other physical constants that are set to such astonishing, astonishingly precise values. That if these values were changed even a hair's breadth, 
then the universe would cease to be life permitting. Yeah. So these values are so incredibly precise, so calculated, so exact. It looks as if a mind created the universe with the intention of bringing man into it. And, uh, and now science, of course, well, science is just can explain everything. Well, uh, apparently not because, uh, uh, atheists have been so desperate to explain away the fine tuning of the universe that they've opted for a view called the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory is, is not testable. It's not based on any observable evidence. No, I observed uh, that. I saw it in a documentary. It was a, a, a movie about superheroes. I think Spider-Man was in it, maybe. I think all the people were in it. Multi, it was, there was a multiverse. Yeah, that wasn't a documentary? Let, let, me, let me draw. Let me, I want to say this. There, there is a, there's an important point, a, a, an important counterpoint to make here. And it's this. Um, going back to Vody Bauckham's statement that we started off with, part of it said they, they the, the authors of Scripture, report supernatural events. Yes, what we're talking, there are some things that we're talking about that are recorded in scripture that are beyond nature, that, that, that happen outside of the laws of physics, um, science, right? The fact that, the fact that Jesus walked on water is not repeatable. It, it contradicts science. Um, and, and so there are some things in the, in the Bible that we would, we would honestly look at and go, yep. That is that is against all known, provable, repeatable processes. Um, but but our God is is the God of nature, and so He can command it to do likewise. Especially in the case of improving His divinity, um, violating science for the pr- purpose, I would argue, of proving who He is. Sure. Well, my my whole my whole point about with the multiverse is. Scientists just trumpet the fact that they they're just going by the evidence and the facts, but they don't they don't always do that. Um, they deviate from that uh, whenever they need to, and they apparently they need to quite a bit. Um, the whole, the multiverse theory is an example of trying to explain something that's and, and basing you know your view on uh, zero evidence. There's zero evidence for the multiverse, and there's so many other problems. Uh, with that theory, but the point is that uh, scientists do not always go by evidence and facts. They make assumptions. Uh, they are assuming a, a huge number of things, and um, and I, I believe that that belief in God is. Uh, and I'm going to make a bold statement. I believe in God. I believe that belief in God is the only rational position to take. It, it's the only position that explains the kind of universe we live in. Um, it, ex- it explains life, it explains morality, it explains consciousness, and a huge number of other things. And I think science is completely uh, inadequate to explain uh, those things and many more. So, you know, this idea that like science just leads us into absolute truth and can explain everything is just simply, uh, simply false. And we put way too much confidence in uh, science and scientists when we need to be putting our confidence in the God of the universe. Yeah, I would, uh, I would add this, especially because you asked, you know, for maybe a young Christian who's going off to college or something, what would we, what would we say to a person like this? And I would, I would encourage first and foremost to apply the same level of scrutiny 
um, to these new things that you're hearing. If it's not good and right for you to believe in Jesus just because mommy and daddy said so, then it's also not good and right for you to believe in evolution just because your professors say so. Um, apply the same level of scrutiny to their claims. And I am astonished. I, you know, when I first came to faith, I was in, uh, you know, at university. Um, I went to public school my whole life. And so I was at a, you know, a, a secular college. Um, they were teaching me about evolution and all these other types of things. And that's what I believed when I first came to faith in Christ. Um, I, I believed in all those things. And then I started reading the Bible and I go, man, this seems to be, this does seem to be different than what I'm being told. And so I want to apply the same level of scrutiny. Let me ask some questions about, um, about these things that I claim to believe. And it's interesting. I've heard scientists and, and atheists and stuff say that the Bible doesn't provide any kind of positive test that can be tested scientifically. It just requires you to take everything by faith. But science has these repeatable, demonstrable, verifiable things, as you were mentioning, Greg. And I go, well, is that, is that true? And so again, anybody who's about to go in and, and hear something from your bio 101 class, um, here's what the Bible says. Animals reproduce after their kind. You can go and examine that all you want. Go into the zoology department, go into uh, the, uh, the medical field. Uh, every type of creature produces after its kind. But Darwin's finches, they had different beaks. All finches never gave birth to a non-finch. And so our experience, Shaquille O'Neal and, and, and us were the same type of being. We're human beings. A lot of variance. He's much taller. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a, there's a lot of variance, <laughs> but we're still people. And the finches, there's some variance. They're still finches. And yet they, in the science department, will tell you that somewhere a long time ago in a place far, far away, unobserved by human eyes, all these various populations began to diverge and create new types of creatures. And I go, wait, is this a fairy tale book or is this a science book? Because now you're telling me things that are unobserved and there's all these missing links and I have to take by faith. And so just because I read it printed in a, a science book, should I put my faith in that without any scrutiny? Um, God's word from the beginning, every population, every age, every generation, every continent has observed the same thing that animals bring forth after their kind. And I defy you to find something different than that. And just because you say, well, this person's taller and this person's shorter and this one has blonde hair and this one has blue eyes and this one, these finches have big beaks and these ones have small, there's, it's all still what the Bible said. And it shows the genius of our creator that allows populations to um, have some sort of variance to be able to survive in this world that is often hostile towards us because of the curse. But uh, again, nothing ever produces these different kinds. And so the idea that I'm going to take by faith um, as a matter of scientific principle, something that is unobserved and something that is not repeatable and something that is not verifiable, I, I'm not going to do it. In fact, uh, I think it takes more faith to be, uh, you know, believe those claims than it does to, to believe what the scriptures say, um, especially when God has fulfilled prophecies after hundreds and thousands of years, um, not hundreds of thousands, but after hundreds and after thousands of years. Um, these things are, are incredible to me. Um, but, you know, science, un unlike you, Greg, I wouldn't say science is dumb. I, I think that you think pseudoscience is dumb. Science has brought us other amazing things. And sometimes the Bible's even in front of it. The Bible was telling them to wash their hands under running water for a long, long time. There's a long time when doctors would go and touch the cadavers and then come and touch you without washing their hands under running water. Whoops, maybe we should have <laughs> purified our hands a little bit before uh, you did that. Stop killing people. To be clear, I, well, first of all, I was 
being absurd. I know. But, um, I know. but second I know. of all, I, I do mean that almost in a literal sense. Science is dumb. It doesn't speak. Scientists speak. Um, and so I, I was, I probably didn't succeed, but I was using that in two different senses. Um, but as I hear you speak, I, I think this actually draws us to a third um, and equally important theological point uh, um, coming out of the realm of uh, bibliology, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. We've talked about inerrancy. We've talked about um, inspiration. But we need to talk about perhaps sufficiency, the fact that um, we don't need anything besides the Bible to tell us how to walk and live a righteous life, um, how to how to live in response to God. Now, the, the Bible isn't um, a math book. It doesn't teach us that two plus two equal four, um, but it teaches us how to, to live a righteous life and to walk faithfully with God. And thoughts on the sufficiency of Scripture? Amen. Scripture is sufficient. Yeah. Well, you know, um, <clears throat> I've heard people say, well, Genesis isn't meant to be used as a science book. And I guess there is a sense in which that's true, but um, but that that doesn't mean that Genesis is inaccurate either. Yes, it doesn't give us very specific details about everything that happened and how everything happened. But um, keep in mind that Genesis one says that the universe had a beginning, and it's interesting it says that because uh, through throughout much of history, um, and among some very uh, prominent people, I, I'm thinking of the Greeks. The belief that the universe is eternal uh, existed, and that 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 view existed for a, a very long time until I think the early 1900s, when um, there was some discoveries made that uh, revealed that the universe actually did have a beginning, and that was something the Bible had said all along. So it's true, yeah. I mean, you know, Genesis one doesn't go into a lot of detail about how God did all these things. It just said God did it. Uh, but it but it does give some scientifically uh, accurate information. Um, you know, Joe said animals produce after their kind. We can test that. The universe had a beginning. There's there's scientific evidence. And I, I believe very strong logical evidence, too, to support that. So it's not enough to just say, well, you know, the Bible is... Um, is not a science book. Well, in one sense, that's true, but the Bible is sufficient to explain um, how the universe came about and uh, other things too. So I would I would say that yeah, the the Bible doesn't tell it all, but what the Bible does say is sufficient for us. Yeah, especially for uh, salvation, right? The Bible isn't sufficient for all knowledge. It doesn't. There's lots of things that it doesn't tell us, um, but the things that it uh, that it does tell us, it tells us particularly so that we would know that there is a God in heaven, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that there is a Savior, and the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved is by the name of Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the scriptures and defeated death by rising from the dead, and who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Um, these things uh, we could not necessarily come to by uh, our own scientific testing, although we can test the prophecies that were given. Um, we can test the, the eyewitness testimonies and, and realize it's not just believers, but even unbelievers like Roman historians and Jewish historians admitted that something uh, very interesting and important was happening around this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be somebody and who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, and certainly his earliest followers claimed that he was God and risen from the dead, even though not everybody believed that. Um, so we can examine those things by historical um, tests, by, by um, you know, 
scientific tests. It is true. Most of the time people can't walk on water. So it is significant that someone did. Um, uh, but you know, the, the, uh, the ultimate reality is my faith, uh, is in a person and it's in the person of God. And then I take God's word, uh, seriously. And God has breathed out, I believe these things and not other things. There's other questions of, um, you know, uh, canonicity that, that we could get into. And perhaps that's, you know, for another, why these books and not other books. Um, I do think that when we apply these rigors of, uh, historical tests or prophetic tests, um, uh, you know, documentary tests, um, that all these other supposed candidates, uh, fall short in my opinion. Um, and that's why I don't trust, um, you know, the gospel of Thomas. That's why I don't trust the gospel, the, the gospel of Barnabas. That's why I don't, you know, trust, um, you know, the, the Quran or the book of Mormon or these other things, um, personally. Um, but, uh, um, sufficient knowledge, particularly as it relates to salvation, um, I believe both sufficient and necessary. I don't think that we would come to these things by our own human reasoning. Uh, general creation can tell us that there is a God, that he is powerful, incredibly smart, um, but that Jesus Christ is the son of God uh, in whom uh, redemption of our sins is possible, I think becomes um, necessary for us to have the, uh, the explicit, explicit express written word of God. Uh, and that's why God's word is so important. So that's how I would uh, respond to your, your question there, Greg. I'd also add, um, and what you said, I, I agree hundred <clears throat> uh, percent. I think it's, um, I think there's a lot of internal uh, evidence in scripture to support scripture. And this is just one, there's many examples, but there, there's just one small thing. And I, I don't think it's small, but it's, um, some people might think it's a, a trivial um, issue. But, you know, it's interesting that throughout Scripture, the writers of Scripture are telling man to live in a way that is inconsistent with human nature. For example, in Luke 9.23, Jesus said, whoever would come after him must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It's interesting, if, if man wrote the Bible, you would expect man and I mean, when I say man, I mean without inspiration. If man wrote the Bible without inspiration, you would expect the teachings of the Bible to be more consistent with human nature, but yet you have commands in Scripture that are telling man, deny yourself. Don't live the way that you want to live. Don't live the way that your flesh is uh, telling you to live. Um, so I just, I think it's, I think it's so uh, fascinating that as you read scripture, you can just see the fingerprints of God all over it. And God is the, the, the source of inspiration, I think, is obviously not man, because man would not be saying things like that in scripture. And um, so, yeah, I, I just I, I find I find the Bible to be um, uh, just so well, I find it to be divine. I think uh, it, it has God's fingerprints written all over it. Um, as far as canonicity, yeah, I mean, I think the books that are in the Bible are there for, for good reasons. I think the books that were excluded from the canon were excluded for good reasons. Um, there's probably, I had read an article years ago, um, there's probably 30 different reasons why the, uh, uh, why the Apocrypha books were not included in the canon of Scripture. So that's a topic for another time. But the books that we have in the Bible definitely belong there. 
um, and they, recognized they're inspired as, by God. Recognized as inspired rather than yes. like some Roman Not Catholic. chosen to be, but yes, recognized as inspired. Yeah. So I, I'm, well, I'm, I'm fully confident in the Bible. Well, gentlemen, as we uh, maybe wind this episode down, maybe we could do a quick uh, lightning round. I've got two questions for you. We'll do uh, the, 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 the very fast uh, uh, answer. But um, if someone said, what is the strongest piece of evidence for inspiration of the Bible? What would you say? Go ahead, Greg. Stop it. No, hold on. Give me a second. To think. I can go if you want. I just usually, usually yeah, you go before you're me. The, so you're I the theologian. I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm just a <clears throat> layman here. Give me a second. Okay. Well, boy, that's, that's a tough one because there are, I, there's, I think very strong evidence. I think the, the argument that I gave in the very beginning of this, um, of this episode, uh, for me is, is strong. Um, I, I personally, I believe, I believe that fulfilled prophecy is, is, a very strong um, and persuasive argument for the uh, inspiration of Scripture. And I want to be really specific what I mean by that, because there are so many prophecies in the Bible. Um, from my experience, uh, when I studied the book of Daniel, I was staggered by how precise, how specific these prophecies were, and how you could... I actually went through a um, secular encyclopedia, and I started in a certain time when the book of Daniel was written, and I went ahead in, in history, um, and I, I found where these prophecies had been fulfilled. I just went through a, a, a encyclopedia and looked up these different kingdoms and the things that were predicted by Daniel, and I was shocked by how accurate Daniel's prophecies were. And specifically, I think what really just uh, just blew my mind is when I studied Daniel 11. And I, I went through Daniel 11 with a fine-tooth comb. I studied every verse, every part of every verse. And I found in a secular encyclopedia where all of these events had been fulfilled. And for those who don't know, um, Daniel 11 deals with um, the the conflicts between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires, and um, and it it just it's amazing to me how you can you can look you can you can look at an encyclopedia and say that's what Daniel was talking about right there that was that was when that event happened, and when I got done studying that chapter I thought this was obviously inspired by God there is no doubt about it these prophecies are way too specific um, and. I was floored after after that study. So for me, I mean, there's many reasons why I believe the Bible is inspired, but I think fulfilled prophecy is is one of the um, one of the reasons that really compels me. So fulfilled yeah. prophecy, and I, anybody yeah. who's for, watching the Seleucids and Ptolemies, that was uh, that's intertestamental period history. So yes. the stuff that happened yes. in between the end of. Uh, the close of the Old Testament canon and before Jesus's ministry recorded in the New Testament. But yep. Greg, what about you? Yeah. What's your strongest evidence for inspiration of the Bible? Strongest inspiration. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different route than Eric, and I'm going to say um, the strongest evidence that I see that the Bible is true, that the Bible is correct, is the changes that I've seen in me and in others, right? The fact that the fact that a lying, sinful, prideful person like Joe can be turned into who he is today 
<laughs> and like me too, as it turns out, uh, could be turned into what what we are now. It it works, right? It's it's true. Um, I I don't I mean as interesting as the Ptolemaic and whatever Seleucid. That, that's super that's interesting. Super interesting. I agree um, with Eric. Very interesting. Very. I, I don't disagree. Um, but I will say it's not as interesting as the fact that who I was could be turned into who I am and being turned into what I will be someday. Um, and what, you know, what I'm turning into the fact that the fact that God could do that to me and to Joe and to Eric and to, to millions of other people, that is more persuasive than the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. I was trying to give a non-personal example. I, I, and I, I, I know you were trying to you, one up me with that example. You gotta, no, um, you've got a big you brain. Did, you, you know, you, no, I, I don't I, know, man. Eric, I'm better for knowing you. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I, I agree. Eric, uh, I agree with you. And Greg, I agree with you. I think both of those are persuasive. And it, it's interesting. One of those does line. sound, look at you. <laughs> one of those does sound more objective. And one of those does sound more subjective. But there actually is Bingo. objective reality to the subjective nature of that, too. Like people who knew us before we knew Christ and now who know us afterwards know that that change is not. It's not superficial. It's not the re- result of some uh, short-lived New Year's resolution, but it is an actual uh, change of heart and mind uh, that only God can can really bring about. Um, so uh, those are good answers. Thank you for that. My last question is tied to the sufficiency question. And um, uh, does the sufficiency of Scripture, um, the inspiration of God's Word, the inerrancy of God's Word, um, that we don't need anything beyond Scripture, does that also apply to theologians? Like, do we need all the other people, just like you talked about science is one thing. And then scientists, um, the Bible is one thing. And then we have theologians, those who speak about the Bible. Um, does that sometimes muddy the waters or do we need, uh, do we need the extra explanation, um, of, of guys like us sitting around talking about, uh, what the scriptures say, or can people just sit down, read it on their own, uh, and come to, uh, all the right conclusions? What, what do you think? Lightning round. Yeah. Lightning round. Um, I can, I can say that I will probably be the most divergent here and say that while not necessary, surely helpful. Um, I, I think it's dangerous to, to do theology outside of the context of all that's come before us. Um, you know, Joe, you've nearly got a PhD, Eric, you've got, as we discussed this gigantic brain, um, perhaps you gentlemen can sit down and, and always come to the right conclusion every time just reading the Bible by yourselves. But for simple minded men like me, um, I think those commentaries are helpful um, be, because in, in well in well-rounded doses, um, those commentaries can be helpful because I want to recognize that while the Bible is sufficient, um, I'm not. And so um, I find it very helpful to to hear what faithful godly men and women of the past what conclusions and what arguments they bring to the table to help me understand more fully yeah and i i definitely agree with that um you know i i believe so strongly that god can speak to any person directly through through the bible and i there's been so many times this has happened but there was one time in particular when I was just agonizing practically over a certain uh, certain idea, I didn't know what to think about it. It was bothering me so bad, and I 
prayed and prayed and prayed for months about it. And um, and I, I remember sitting at the in the library of the church preparing for a, a Sunday message or something. And I had I had my Bible um, sitting there, and I wasn't even thinking about this subject at the time. And, and I remember my Bible like just came open. And I'm not saying I didn't touch it. I mean, I touched it, but it, it, it came open and it landed on a chapter and my eyes fell on a verse. And I looked at that verse and after months of praying about this and months of agonizing over this, that verse was the answer to my question. And, you know, I'm not saying to always rely on stuff like that for truth, and usually I don't, but I believe that the average guy can hear from God through the scriptures, and God can just point him to to scriptures. And I I am you know, I am very a very average person in in every way, um, but I, I believe God has led me to certain truths. I'm not claiming to be infallible, um, so don't don't misunderstand me. But I, I believe that God has spoken to me, not in an audible voice, but through the word and showed me things that I was desperately seeking for. So I think God can do that for anybody. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. You, if you, uh, you, but you have to keep seeking and keep knocking and keep asking. And God can do that. Now, but do we need teachers? Well, of course we do. The Bible says we do. The Bible says God has given us uh, apostles and, and prophets and pastors, teachers, evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service. So uh, we we do need teachers, and we I, I don't think I don't think the church can work the way that it was intended to work without teachers who um, are are meant to unpack the Word of God for people. So I, I take teaching very seriously and. Um, so I, I believe both. I believe we that God can speak to the average person, and I believe we absolutely need teachers as well. Well, uh, brothers, I don't know why, uh, Greg, you thought that that would be so divergent. Uh, I am in full agreement. I think the book itself tells us that we are not supposed to study this in our isolated studies by ourselves, but it's a, a, a communal faith. It's something that we're supposed to have, Eric, as you were just saying, uh, teachers, and there are people that are supposed to do that. But uh, just like so many of the other doctrines that we've talked about, sometimes people think it's all about community. I just rely only on other people telling me what the Bible has to say, and I don't read it for myself. Well, be careful, because you better hope that you've got the right group telling you the right stuff, because if you don't really know what the Bible says for yourself, how are you going to evaluate what these teachers are, are saying to you? Likewise, if you don't care about what any uh, historical theology or, or any of our brothers and sisters from the past or the present are saying about God's Word, you're only isolated by yourself, you're probably going to get yourself in big trouble. In fact, uh, um, sometimes being smart is the worst thing that can happen because you'll start to piece things together in a way that nobody can even, uh, you know, you, you just think you're right and and uh, everybody else is wrong. But um, uh, the more that we read the Bible for ourselves and then spend time in community with other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are trying to seek the truth, uh, the better off that we are. And it will protect us from error. It will protect us from, um, you know, many of the problems that, uh, have come up and most of the errors they've already happened before the, the church has dealt with these same errors these same issues time and time again as greg you have uh, rightly quoted before there is nothing new 
under the sun. And so um, we can all be wise by quoting the wisest man who ever lived and uh, knowing that uh, that is still true. Uh, even though we've added all these uh, futile addition of zeros at the beginning, um, life is still uh, pretty much the same uh, as it uh, was before. We're not better because we have iPhones. Um, maybe if we weren't looking at the iPhones, we'd, we'd figure out how they built the pyramids. They were actually doing stuff uh, instead of uh, wasting all their time on this thing that we think has made us better. Yeah, oh, could be that too, I guess, for another time. But uh, <laughs> brothers, you got anything else to say before we uh, sign off for today? No. Well, I'm spent. Spent. All right. Well, as always, I enjoy uh, uh, hearing your perspective and uh, talking with you about these uh, weighty things. If you're still watching this video and got any value out of it, uh, feel free to uh, click that lum, uh, thumbs up button or that like button. Uh, share it with all your friends and family and uh, uh, let us know what you think in the comments below. Consider subscribing if you haven't subscribed to the channel. And uh, until we see you again, get equipped, obey your king, and glorify your God.